Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome to this special episode of New Books and Sports. I'm your host, Bruce Berglund. Usually on the podcast, we hear about the newest book of a journalist or scholar working in some area of sports. But every so often, we devote an episode to a particular subject in sports, and we hear from a variety of experts who tell us about their work on that topic. For this seminar episode, we are looking at the Olympics, the history of the Olympic movement, the economic effects of the Games, how the media presents the Olympics, and the ways in which the Olympics are seen and understood by people around the world. Over the next two hours, we'll hear from professors and journalists with years and even decades of experience researching and covering the Olympic Games. This is a big episode, but I think you'll find it a fascinating one. I can say that I've learned a lot as I've been recording the interviews with the various guests over the last few weeks. And I think that you'll find something you didn't know about the Olympics in this episode. At the least, you'll gain plenty of suggestions of good books if you're looking for some reading for these last few weeks of summer. To start, we'll look at the history of the modern Olympics. As most sports fans know by now, London is the first city to hold three different Olympic Games. But what is less known is the important influence that British sport has had in the emergence of the modern Olympic movement. Of course, the founder of the modern Olympics was the French nobleman Pierre de Coubertin. But Coubertin's idea for an international athletics competition was shaped by what he observed in Britain where people had been gathering for sports festivals and calling them Olympics for centuries. Martin Pauly describes this history of Olympic competitions in his new book, The British Olympics, Britain's Olympic Heritage, 1612-2012, published by English Heritage in 2011. A senior lecturer in sport at the University of Southampton Martin has been researching the history of British sport and the Olympics for more than two decades. To start our conversation, I asked him about the first London Olympics in 1908. These games are regarded by historians as the most influential of the early Olympic movement. Martin explained the significance of London 1908 for the development of the Olympics. The 1908 Games, I think, were incredibly important in so many ways. The first thing is to remember that the three games before that, or sorry, the two games before that, Paris 1900, St. Louis 1904, the Olympics were really lost amidst all the flurry of the trade fair. Uh, the Games were poorly organized. The Coubertin didn't even go to, to Missouri for the 1904 Games. Uh, they were spread out over long periods, and they were pretty hectic. What London 1908 did was to bring most of the Olympic program, not all, but most of the Olympic program together 
into a two-week period, with most of the events being held in one location. Um, so in terms of creating a template for a condensed, quite intense period of Olympic competition, we have 1908 to thank for that. The second thing that I think was so significant about 1908 was it was the first time that an Olympic stadium was purpose-built from scratch. Athens in 1896 had reused an ancient site. Paris and St. Louis had both used various grounds, college fields, sports club fields, etc. What London did was build a new stadium from scratch, paid for by the organisers of the Franco-British Exhibition. Um, but it was purpose-built for the Games with um, a grass track for hurdles, a cinder track for athletics, a cycling track around the outside and a swimming pool on the infield and then a big enough infield for the field events and for rugby, soccer, uh, field hockey and lacrosse. So that's another major contribution of 1908. Next one, I guess, is national teams. It's the first time that people had to be registered as members of national teams and then all sorts of other little things along the way. The first time the organisers wrote down the rules of amateurism, for example. Um, the first time we've got gold, silver, bronze medals in the exact format we now know them. So many, many ways in which London 1908 created a template. So London also held the 1948 Games, and these are known as the Austerity Games. Mm -hmm. uh, the city did not build, or the organizers did not build any new facilities, and, and these are known for their, for their low budget uh, yep. coming right yep. after the war and while Britain is still uh, having hard economic times. Why did the, the London organizers in 1948 agree to hold the Games uh, so soon after the war? Um, the International Olympic Committee were very keen to get the Olympics back on track as soon after the war as possible. If you go back to 1920, they've held them then just two years after the end of the Great War, so not to interrupt the cycle anymore. So that was a precedent. And for 1948, they staged the Winter Games at St. Moritz early in 48. So London was really you know, the second Olympic Games after the war in that way. Um, the IOC were keen for it to be held in Europe. Um, a number of American cities did offer their services, um, but the IOC were keen for it to be held in Europe, so it sent out positive messages about Europe, Europe recovering from the war. Uh, but obviously, apart from Switzerland, continental Europe was in no, no state to hold it. London had been involved in the bid for 1940, uh, so it really was London's turn again. And the organisers were keen to stage it as a, 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 you know, for a number of reasons. I think as a morale booster to show that the people of Britain that sport is back and we can we can act normally again um, as a message to the world that London's recovered, but also financially as a way to bring in tourist revenue, particularly U.S. dollars. So your most recent book, Martin, is titled Britain's Olympic Heritage, and uh, the dates in the title are 1612 to 2012. Well, the 2012 is obvious, but the interesting thing is 1612. So if the first modern games were in 1896. How do you get the date 1612 for your book? What we've got is the first modern games, the, what I like to call the Coubertin version. Well, I know some people think I'm a bit of a heretic for this. <laughs> what Coubertin did was, was brilliant, but he was simply one of many people over a long period of time and in many countries to stage a sporting event and call it Olympic. Basically, lots of people were attracted in different ways to the ancient Olympic Games, and they used the name from that, which had obviously died off in, in 393 AD. They used the name from that and various forms of imagery from the ancient games, most of it imagined, um, to add to their own games. 
and in Britain, the, the first real, real one evidence we have for this comes from um, a series of sports called alternatively Robert Dover's Olympic Games or the Cotswold Olympics or Dover's Games on Cotswold Hill. And they started in the early 17th century. The first clear date we have is 1612. Perfect for 400 years. Um, and they were a series of um, pretty rowdy sports, really. Very strong anti-Puritanical strand, very strong pro-Roman uh, Catholic strand. So there was maypoles, there was dancing, there was wrestling, there was cudgeling, all sorts of hunting, hair and all sorts of rough sports. And Robert Dover was an educated man. He was a lawyer. He had a lot of friends who were poets and lawyers. And they were beginning to know in the Renaissance about the ancient Olympics. The knowledge of the Olympics had been shut down until the Renaissance began to get the, the relaxation of the church's grip on, on knowledge and on ancient texts. And so a lot of Dover's friends, I think completely with their tongues in their cheeks, started referring to Dover's Games as like the Olympic Games or as a rebirth of the Olympic Games. And the name stuck in those games. Yeah, they, they've been shut down at various points, but they still go on. I was there three weeks ago watching them this year with the, the World Shin Kicking Championships. But then after that, you get a lot of events all over the country starting to call themselves Olympic. Uh, a big flurry of them comes in the late 18th century after an Englishman, Richard Chandler, discovered the site of ancient Olympia. So there were Olympic Games in Hampstead and in Hendon in London. And then a massive burst of them in the 19th century when people started to add their kind of value of amateurism and the idea of rational recreation to a, an imagined reading of what ancient Greek sport must be like. So the key ones are 1850 at much Wenlock in Shropshire with the Wenlock Olympian Games in the 1860s, the Liverpool Olympic Festivals. Also in the 1860s, the National Olympian Games. Bear in mind that Cooperton was born in 1863, so many of these predate him or were happening when he was a youngster. And then in Morpeth in Northumberland, a professional series called the Morpeth Olympic Games, which started in the 1870s and ran on until 1958. So Cooperton, what he did was to make all this international. He got a lot of his ideas from Britain, particularly from the Wenlock Olympian Games. But I think it's crucial to stress that he was simply one of many who called his modern sporting event Olympic. He was the most successful, but he was just one of many. I want to follow up on that and ask about uh, the direct influence that these games in England had on Coubertin. And mm. so how was it that he uh, encountered these various games being played in, in Britain? And how did uh, what he saw influence his mm. ideas for the modern Olympics? Um, in the 1880s, Kubertan was very keen on um, sport and education. Uh, he, he was making a lot of visits to um, to the US and to Britain to look at how sport was run in universities and then in Britain, particularly in, in the private schools. And so he, he was doing a lot of work and writing and evangelical work, really, for the reform of sport in France, and um, particularly for education. And in 1889, he was part of a committee who were going to organise a conference on sport, and he wrote a paper to, uh, sorry, wrote a letter to various newspapers, including the Times of London, asking for anyone who was involved in running sporting events or, or running sport at school or college to send him information. And one of the people who happened to reply was William Penny Brooks, who was the um, organiser and founder of the Wenlock Olympian Games in Shropshire. And he wrote uh, to Coubertin. He sent him details about the Wenlock Games. 
He sent him printed versions of some of the speeches he'd given, including those at the National Olympian Games in London in 1866. And uh, he invited Cooperton to come and see. And Cooperton was a fantastic networker, classic Anglophile, loved anything English. And so in 1890, he made the trip from France to a little town in Shropshire. Um, they put on a special episode of the Games for him. He was guest of honour. They put on a ball for him. He planted an oak tree on the, the playing field and watered it in with champagne. They made a big, big fuss of him. And he was hooked. And he loved the um, Olympian vocabulary. He liked that they were using reeds and things with nice classical imagery. And he really saw this as a connection between modern sport and ancient ideals. And it really was from that moment that he started not just writing about reforming sport in school, but about reviving the Olympic Games. So he made that visit in October 1890. He then starts seeing Olympic coming into his vocabulary more in the early 90s. And then in 1894, he organized a conference that formed the International Olympic Committee. So a very, very, very strong direct link from Wenlock to Kubitam. So, Martin, I'll ask, can you recommend any, any favorite books on uh, the history of the Olympics or particular games? I, I certainly can. In 2008, quite a few books came out to celebrate the centenary of London's first Olympics. And my favorite one of those is by Rebecca Jenkins, and it's called The First London Olympics, 1908. Um, Rebecca's written a fantastic narrative. It's... Um, very well researched in archives and newspapers in Britain and America, gorgeous illustrations, and it very much tells the story of OH. It does concentrate on the stadium event, so there's not so much on the things that went on beyond the stadium, like sailing and uh, rowing and shooting, for example. But she really captures the flavour, and in particular, she gets the Anglo-American rivalries um, absolutely bang on. My other one that I'd recommend is for 1948, which does pretty much the same thing, tell the story, and that's by Jamie Hampton. It's called The Austerity Olympics, when the Games came to London in 1948. And uh, Jamie, she had an advantage, if you like, over Rebecca, in that a lot of people from 48 were still alive, as indeed they, they still are. So Jamie was able to interview them. So she's got lots of unique oral history uh, voices coming through. And she blends that, again, with archival and newspaper research, and you absolutely get the flavor of what these games were like. So those are my two recommendations. Martin Pauly's book recommendations for the previous two London games are Rebecca Jenkins' book, The First London Olympics, 1908, and Janie Hampton's book is Austerity Olympics, When the Games Came to London in 1948 published by Aram Press in 2008. The conventional picture of a British Olympian of the early 20th century is an Oxford-educated gentleman, a true amateur, whose money and station allowed him to devote himself to sportsmanly competition. Think of the runners in chariots of fire in their white uniforms splendidly gliding along the beach. But this view of the amateur British Olympian is not entirely accurate. In this Olympic year, Jean Williams of the International Center for Sport History and Culture has contributed to an update of the Oxford Dictionary of National Biography that has added articles on several dozen athletes. Jean's research has brought to light the participation of several working-class men and women 
on early British Olympic teams in a variety of events. She discussed this work in our conversation, as well as the reasons why Olympians and athletes need to be included among the significant figures of a nation's history. Yeah, I mean, um, people's sporting interests and leisure interests have always been part of the dictionary. But again, it changes our perception of who have been significant uh, influences in British social and cultural life. So if I give you an example, I think we're all aware of the upper class um, amateur who perhaps had field sports or blood sports as their interests as, as Victorians. And indeed, a lot of the early Olympic Games have been seen through a sort of nostalgic fog. Um, I often call it the chariots of fire effect, <laughs> that we think of it as these upper class amateurs who ran for the love of sport um, and went to Oxbridge University and, and, and all of this. But actually what we're finding as we look at the people who competed in the Olympic Games is that there are more working class amateurs. And as anybody who's read Lincoln Allison's books on amateurism will know, from a lot of middle and upper class amateurs, their CVs and their social links were benefited by their association with sport. One of the really interesting things about the working class participants is that it didn't benefit them really in any way. They were the people who competed purely for the love of the game. And um, that, again, is changing our perceptions of who Olympians are and were. Having looked at these various new entries on, on British Olympians, uh, who, in your view, which athletes most deserve our attention? So say, can you give us the name of, of one man and one woman uh, who really should be noticed for their uh, contributions to sport? Okay, well, um, I would guess the um, the woman that I would like to highlight is a swimmer called Jenny Fletcher. And she's significant for two reasons. One is that she tells us this early story about working class amateurism. Um, Jenny was, a, again, a Leicester Mill girl. She worked in a hosiery factory for six days a week for 12 hours a day and she trained extensively for her swimming career but outside of her work. She also um, played the piano to a pretty good standard. And we start to get this idea of working class amateurs inconveniencing themselves to an incredible degree in order to participate at the highest level. So uh, if I say to you that Jenny first came to prominence in 1906 by winning the National Championships of England organised by the Amateur Swimming Association, um, and she prepared for that by swimming in Leicester Canal, um, uh, because obviously the local baths were not open before she went to work. She would run in the local park, she would uh, do calisthenics, and she ate a pretty good diet. So we can see that she definitely prepared outside of swimming. But if you can imagine what swimming in Leicester Canal was like in 1906, <laughs> it would have been a pretty unpleasant and, and cold business. Um, 
And there was actually a proposal in 1908 that women's swimming was going to be included in the London Olympic Games. It wasn't. There was a demonstration diving event. And so she had to wait for her chance uh, in 1912 in Stockholm, uh, where she came third in the individual freestyle event of 100 metres. And um, the British relay team, uh, there was a, a Scottish woman called Bella Moore. There was an, uh, a Welsh woman called um, Irene Steer. And there was a, a Liverpudlian called uh, Annie Spears. And they won the 4x100 freestyle gold medal for Britain. So, so Jenny was a, a double medalist in 1912. And all of them of, of working class background? And all of them of, of working class background, yeah. And it's only the, one of the things I would say, um, people in in Britain in the lead up to London 2012 have been a little bit cynical, and I think rightly so, about what um, sustainability means and what legacy means. Uh, indeed, we've had a TV programme on here called 2012, and they kind of pastiche this idea of, you know, what is legacy and what is sustainable um, and, and it's been kind of a, a, a big joke coming up to these games. But I think one of the things that it has done is that it's made us think about who our Olympians are. And when I started my research for a collective biography that I'm writing uh, for Manchester University Press that is going to come out next year, when I started that research in 2005 when the Games were awarded to London, neither the British Olympic Association nor the IOC could tell me how many women had competed for Britain since the Games had been going. Um, and I think lots of local museums, archives, collections and so forth have been reflecting on the material that we've got and we now do have a better sense of the Olympic legacy in Britain and who has represented Team GB. And do you have a male athlete who stands out from the, the new entries in the dictionary? The male athlete I would choose is not um, a, a new entry. He's um, He was already in the Dictionary of National Biography. Now, I would choose John Jarvis again, not just because I'm, I'm from Leicester, but because he was a multiple medalist. And one of the other things that we found during the process of this research is that he was very active in obtaining the racing suits that they wore um, to compete. And these racing suits were actually made of silk, specially made, weighing less than two ounces. They were incredibly expensive. So if I give you an indication that um, a general man's suit at the time we're talking would have cost about two shillings, which in British pounds today, a retail price equivalent would be about 15 pounds. In dollars, I'm guessing 20 to 25 dollars. Mm -hmm. The racing silk suits cost just slightly more than five times that amount. Mm -hmm. So you can imagine this specialist, expensive technology and what that would have cost these working class competitors who nevertheless were trying to use the most up-to-date technology available at the time. And, and I think it's quite interesting to reflect on the developments of the racing suit up, up to today, you know, in terms of fast skin technology, and to think that these 
swimming Edwardians were concerned with the slippery qualities of fabric in water and they were trying to use it to their competitive advantage, even though it's quite expensive. So, Jean, do you have a recommendation for a, uh, a book on the Olympics, on Olympic sports? There's such a wealth of material on the Olympic Games. Um, I suppose um, John McAloon's book, um, This Great Symbol, is um, one that I always refer students to, thinking not just about the the events and the facts, if you like, of the Olympic Games, but the symbolic um, aspects. Um, obviously, Alan Gutman's book is, is a wonderful starting book to think about the broader issues of politics, gender, class, and the, the way that the Olympics themselves have changed. Um, but I think there are a number of wonderful releases about individual games. Um, uh, I loved um, Janie Hampton's book on the 1948 London Olympic Games, where she had interviewed everyone from the girl guides and the scouts who had volunteered to the organisers. And I think that she's provided a real template for the way that people are going to approach individual Olympic games. Jean Williams' suggestions for books on Olympic history are John McAloon, This Great Symbol, Pierre de Coubertin, and The Origins of the Modern Olympic Games, published by Rutledge in 2008. Alan Goodman's book is The Olympics, A History of the Modern Games, published by the University of Illinois Press in 2002. This book also received the endorsement of other guests on the podcast as did Janie Hampton's History of the 1948 Olympics, The Austerity Games. One of the impressive features of recent books on the history of the Olympics is that they show the broad possibilities of sports history. For example, on previous episodes of New Books and Sports, we've talked to Nick Sarantakis about his research on the 1980 Winter and Summer Olympics, and Chris Young and Kai Schiller, about their book on the 1972 Munich Games. Both of these works show how the Olympics have been interconnected with international and domestic politics, social change, and cultural developments. Historian Barbara Keyes of the University of Melbourne has looked at the broader impact of the Olympics during the 1930s, the decades of the first games in Los Angeles and Berlin. Her book, Globalizing Sport, National Rivalry, and International Community in the 1930s was published by Harvard University Press in 2006, and it has since won several awards. In our interview, Barbara talked about how international athletics in the 30s were understood and used both by the ideological dictatorships of Europe as well as by Americans. To start, I asked her about her broader argument that sports have been an important contributor to the process of globalization. Sports have been one of the major vehicles of cultural globalization. You think about the way that sports originated in, most modern sports originated in Britain in the 18th and 19th centuries. They became codified and standardized and then spread around the world. And now everybody plays not just these particular sports like soccer that originated in Britain, but the whole ethos and philosophy of individual competitive sport 
team sports, uh, the particular norms and rules associated with the the general uh, concept of sport has spread around the world. So you can you can trace other ideas of sport, more traditional ideas of, of physical recreation, German gymnastics, for example, or martial arts, Asian martial arts, have a different ethos and are not competitive and achievement-oriented in quite the same way that modern Western sports are. So it's not just the spread of particular sports that's been noticeable, but also the spread of these values that go along with modern Western sports. And we can see in the Olympic Games in particular, these are the most visible uh, forum at which virtually the entire world participates. And in order to participate, people have to pick up these modern Western sports because that's what's mostly on the Olympic program. So in order to be recognized as a nation in this increasingly important international forum, nations have adopted modern Western sports. And that has been a a very significant element of cultural globalization as, as the world has adopted these cultural elements. So in your book, you make the case that the 1930s are a particularly important period in looking at this this history of uh, sport as a vehicle of globalization. Why is that decade uh, so important in looking at the, at the history of global sport? Well, it's a decade in which modern Western sport and international sporting competitions uh, spread and become more international than ever before. So they start out really at the end of the 19th century. These international sport competitions start out as primarily Western European events with Americans participating, Canadians and, and some people in the British Empire. And it's in the 1930s that we begin to see, for example, Japan coming into the into play as Japan tries to make itself modernized, tries to participate in the international system as a recognized power, and China makes an entrance. It becomes these international sport competitions, the Olympic Games in particular, become truly international, truly global in the 1930s. And they also become uh, much more significant in political terms. And this is partly because of the rise of dictatorships in the 1930s, the the Nazis, the fascists in Italy, that begin to try to use these sports and these sporting competitions as ways to legitimize themselves, uh, as ways to prove the superiority of their political and economic systems, and as ways to indoctrinate the the people, the masses, in behaviors that they consider to be uh, valuable. Physical fitness becomes a sort of proxy for the measure of the health and strength of a nation uh, in an era when all kinds of nations are jockeying to appear militarily strong. You want to have visible evidence that your population is healthy and strong, and sports and sports victories become a means to that end. So the political importance increases, the economic importance increases. We see the rise of uh, greater levels of commercialization. And this is particularly true because at the Los Angeles Olympic Games in 1932, the Americans do what they were doing very well, which is to link advertising uh, to events. And so you see the rise of... uh, it's not uh, entirely new in 1932, but there's a, a real leap in 1932 in the level of commercialization at the Olympic Games. So the economic significance of the Olympic Games and in, in general of other sporting events as well uh, increases. So in political terms, in economic terms, in, in cultural terms, as we see these forms of sport spread around the world, uh, the 1930s, in my view, marks a real turning point. 
So you've talked about how the ideological dictatorships of the 1930s sought to use uh, use sport to present themselves in in international politics. And uh, in your book, you focus on Nazi Germany and you focus on the Soviet Union under Stalin. Uh, but another country you focus on in your book is the United States. So how does the United States, in its use of international sports, uh, compare to uh, the dictatorships in the 1930s? Well, there's less government involvement in international sports in the United States. So in the dictatorships, elite athletes are subsidized and trained and regarded as essentially agents of the state. Um, And the government controls international sport bodies very uh, overtly. In the United States, the government has a more hands-off approach. It does not provide direct subsidies to the American Olympic team. And it claims sport is apolitical. This is a repeated mantra of Americans, certainly in the 30s and then throughout the Cold War, the idea that sport should be apolitical and that the government should keep its hands off of sport. At the same time, uh, it's not necessarily that government officials are uh, explicitly involved, but Americans are involved in shaping messages about what they want to say about what American sports mean. So there are people writing, uh, sports journalists and intellectuals writing about the meaning of American sport and saying that somehow American sport is fundamentally democratic and contrasting the ways that Americans play sport with the ways that the dictatorships have organized sport and saying that Americans are, are, are adhering to the pure ideal of sport, whereas the dictatorships are subverting it. So there's a message that somehow America has tapped into a, the, the, the purity of sport. Americans, for example, always engage in fair play. They adhere to the amateur ideal. And it's seen as a, as a, as a vehicle for values then. Sport, is, sport, the way Americans play it, is seen as a vehicle for American values. And this is why Americans are excited that, for example, Japan is very enthusiastic about baseball in the 1930s. It's seen as a way for Japan to become Americanized. And Americans have, for various reasons, not a great deal of success in spreading particular sports, aside from Japan and a few places in the Caribbean. Baseball is not very popular around the world. Basketball has only more recently become popular. But in terms of the training techniques and this idea that uh, there's a, a democracy of sport, this is more widely spread in uh, amateur sports that Americans are excelling at at the time swimming, for example, uh, track and field, the American ethos in those kinds of sports does become influential and does help to shape international sports practices around the world. So even though particular American sports don't get spread, uh, certain American ideals do get spread in the 1930s. You mentioned earlier that the 1930s, or in the 1930s, uh, you see the beginnings of corporate sponsorship of, of major sports events, such as the Olympics. So uh, what, did, what did corporate sponsorship look like uh, with the Olympics in the 30s? Well, it looks pretty tame from today's perspective. And it's really only in the beginning in the 1980s that we've seen the explosion of corporate sponsorship that we're so familiar with today. Uh, and of course, there wasn't television in the 1930s. There was There was something like television at the 1936 Berlin Games, but it was really only for Berlin, really nothing like what we have today. So what it looked like, for example, in in, in 1932 and 1936 was 
companies advertised in newspapers saying that they were the Olympic blank, uh, the Olympic department store, the Olympic shoe. Um, and these were not official deals uh, for the most part. The American Olympic Committee and the International Olympic Committee had considerably less resources and less power to enforce the brand. So <laughs> there's a tiff going on right now with, uh, I don't know if you've seen this, uh, the American Olympic Committee, I believe, has, has been telling American knitters not to call their competition the Olympics. So the American Olympic Committee today goes around telling people you know, they can't use the term Olympics. That was, that was less the case in the 1930s. And so companies would simply hop onto the bandwagon and make themselves appear to be or, or make the claim that they were Olympic in one way or another in newspaper advertising, in creating little trinkets to pass out at the Olympic Games. Coke, for example, created a, a, an events a little events program that it handed out to the spectators at the Olympics. In order to find out what time different events were, were, were happening, they would turn to their little Coke uh, program. T-shirts, caps, pins, all that sort of thing uh, was proliferating in the 1930s as well. And at least initially at the very first Olympic Games, there were Olympic, I'm sorry, there were corporate advertisements in Olympic venues. By the 1930s, the Olympic Committee has decided to stop that. So there aren't the big posters um, or um, banners or billboards in Olympic venues by the 1930s. But people are out standing outside the venues handing out these things or selling these things, trying to link their brand names with Olympic ideals. Barbara, I'll ask if you have any, any books that you'd recommend about the history of the Olympics or uh, a particular games well, there are two uh, books that I would recommend. One is by David Large, and it's uh, on the Nazi games. He also has a, a new book on the 1972 Munich games, which I haven't read yet. It's just come out, and it's probably very good. But his book on the Nazi games is really wonderful. He tells the stories vividly and in a very entertaining way, the stories of Hitler getting the games, the stories of the athletes uh, it's a very well-written, very deeply researched book, and probably, I would say, the best book on this very interesting Olympic Games. The other book I would recommend is Amy Bass. It's a book called Not the Triumph, But the Struggle, 1968 Olympics and the Making of the Black Athlete. And it centers around that iconic image of John Carlos and Tommy Smith on the victory stand in 1968 with their black gloved fists raised in the Black Power Salute. And she looks at, first of all, how this came about, this particular protest, where it originated, uh, what it meant, and then at the different reactions to it. And I, I find it a fascinating book because I, I think when we think back on, on that famous protest now, we think of it as a, as a good thing, as a, a legitimate expression by African Americans of the civil rights struggle. And yet at the time, it was widely condemned. This is an era in which Avery Brundage was president of the International Olympic Committee. He kicked Tommy Smith and John Carlos off of the team and, and kicked them out of the Olympic Village. And American opinion at the time was widely um, hostile to this gesture, um, partly because of the, the persistence of this myth that the sport should be free from politics. Anyways, Amy Bass tells the story uh, very well. It's a very entertaining book. Barbara Key's book recommendations are David Clay Large, Nazi Games, The Olympics of 1936, published in 2007 by Norton. And the book by Amy Bass is titled Not the Triumph, But the Struggle, 
1968 Olympics and the Making of the Black Athlete, published by the University of Minnesota Press in 2004. Throughout their history, the modern Olympic Games have been connected with the pursuit of profit. As Barbara explained, businesses sought to take advantage of Olympic connections already in the 1930s. And even before that, the early games in Paris, St. Louis, and London were held as side events to international trade and industry expositions. As the London 2012 Olympics prepare to open, it's estimated that the games will generate 10 billion pounds for the British economy. But of course, these projections are subject to debate, and some critics suggest that the London games, and indeed all mega sports events, are not worth the trouble and the expense. To get an understanding of the costs and benefits of holding the Olympics, I spoke with economist Victor Matheson of the College of Holy Cross, the author of dozens of articles on the economics of sports. To begin, I asked him what economic benefits are promised by the organizers of major sporting events like the Olympics. So there's two things that uh, Olympic organizers uh, generally look at. One is they think there's going to be an immediate huge boost in tourism during the month of the event. They uh, expected that the uh, Olympics will bring in this huge flood of very wealthy, uh, on average, tourists who will come and drop a ton of money in the city during the month the Olympics are on. The second thing the Olympic organizers say is that there will be a large legacy effect, which is uh, a variety of things could happen. But number one, you could uh, kind of showcase your city as a great tourist destination that allows uh, huge numbers of, of visitors to come in the years after uh, the Olympics. And also it could be also a, a big business center as well where you say, okay, this is a way that we put ourselves on the map, not just to tourists, but to major corporations. And now we have firms from around the world coming to our city because they remember watching the city during the Olympics. So in your research, have you found, do games actually bring in any of these benefits to host cities? Well, uh, yes and no. There is certainly no doubt that there's a large number of people who come to any of these events. However, there are some problems associated with that. First of all, uh, anytime you have a, an Olympics in town, it, that's a huge event that also tends to scare away other visitors at the same time. So, for example, in Greece, in the run-up to the 2004 Olympics, sure, you had a lot of people come in August to the Olympics, but basically Athens was under construction for a whole year beforehand, and uh, actually for the year of 2004 as a whole, they didn't experience an increase in tourists. They actually had lower tourism numbers than a typical year because people were chased away by the construction early, and during the actual Olympic month itself, you, you lose all of the regular tourism and business uh, travel because uh, no one in their right mind goes to the Olympics uh, for anything but the, uh, but the sporting events during the week of that. So if you're a regular visitor to Athens or a regular visitor to Beijing or a business person trying to arrange a meeting, you avoid an Olympic city like the plague because it's simply too crowded and congested. And what about the, the promised long-term or legacy effects? So the long-term, these are much harder to, uh, to identify. In some cases, we definitely see some distinct legacy effects. In other cases, we don't see anything at all. 
for most of the Winter Olympics, for example, uh, we see very little in the way of legacy effects. Uh, for example, the most of the large hotels built for the Lillehammer Games uh, in, in Norway uh, filed for bankruptcy almost immediately after the games were were there. Obviously, they were filled for the whole games, but as soon as the Olympics went away, so did a lot of the tourists. Uh, you didn't see any big, huge tourism increases in places like Montreal or Atlanta. Uh, China has uh, and Beijing has not experienced large increases in tourism numbers since the Olympics. Uh, the the opposite case, though, is is the case of Barcelona. Barcelona can probably be held out as one of the great examples of the Olympics really putting a city on the map. But Barcelona is a little bit unique in that it, it was a great city that had huge things to offer tourists. But it was kind of a hidden gem. Uh, it was never thought of in the same league as the other great European cities like Paris or London or Madrid or Rome. Uh, but it really had the same sort of things to offer like those cities. And as soon as it got the chance to shine, in fact, uh, it, it was able to have a huge increase in tourist uh, uh, revenues and tourist visits. And by now, Barcelona is the fourth most visited city in Europe. Mm-hmm. And is, so is Barcelona really an outlier then? I would say Barcelona is an outlier, or it's this perfect storm. What you need is a city that has wonderful things to offer, but no one knows about. Mm-hmm. So London, I would not expect to see any tourism boom because everyone knows the great cultural attraction that London is already. So London doesn't need to be put on a map. Mm-hmm. It is already on everyone's map. The other side of the, the story is Atlanta. Atlanta certainly got its moment to shine in the sun, but Atlanta doesn't have much to offer a typical tourist. So, you know, there's not many people coming over to the United States from Europe who say, oh, you know, where am I going to go? I'm going to go to D.C. I'm going to go to New York City. I'm going to go to Yellowstone and then say, oh, well, you know, that Olympics. Well, let's let's not go to New York City. Let's go to let's go to Atlanta instead. Uh, you don't you simply don't have many people who are making that sort of choice. So uh, mentioning Barcelona, and I take it that would be uh, perhaps the best example of outcomes from an Olympic Games. Looking at the, the economic history of the recent Games, in your opinion, what's, what's really the, the worst case in terms of organization and then outcomes? So uh, there are kind of two. There, there's, there's a couple big highlighting points uh, over the last 30 or 40 years. Uh, one was... Uh, there were some big disasters of games in, in 1972, which was a disaster from a political standpoint, when you had the uh, Israeli, uh, Israeli terrorism incident where the Israeli athletes were, were killed by, by terrorists. Uh, that was in Munich. Uh, that certainly put a huge black eye on the games. And then four years later in Montreal, we had a gigantic economic disaster where Montreal put out millions of dollars, uh, billions in, in current dollars, uh, to host the games and got very little left in return except for huge amounts of debt. Fast forward a couple of years, by the time 1984 rolled around, uh, Los Angeles was the only city in the world willing to bid for the games. And because they were the only bidder, they were able to uh, force the IOC's hand rather than the IOC, uh, the International Olympic Committee, uh, being able to go the other way. So Los Angeles had a very, very frugal games. Uh, financed almost entirely by private sources, and they used the old stadiums, uh, the old L.A. Coliseum, the old Rose Bowl, stadiums that had been used 60 years before for a previous Olympics. But uh, And they made a huge profit on it. 
but because all these other cities around the world say, wow, look at this huge profit we can make, all of a sudden following the L.A. Games, you had huge numbers of cities competing for the right to host the Olympics. Of course, now that you have lots of people bidding, you have a situation where uh, the IOC is in the driver's seat instead of the other way around. They can say, look, you better make a much more lavish bid than that if you have any chance of beating your opponents. And, and therefore, you have these games where spending spirals out of control. You know, uh, $20 billion for, for London, $40 billion for Beijing, certainly in the tens of billions of dollars for Rio. So the LA Games uh, famously made a profit, and I know there have been other games uh, in which there have been claims made to a profit or at least breaking even. Is that uh, kind of uh, bookmaking ledger domain, or is, uh, you know, are they hiding uh, the public costs so that they don't repeat the same disaster uh, that you had with Montreal in 1976? I think you can say fairly safely that by fair accounting practices, the L.A. games made money. Again, this is back in the days before the huge security outlays that you need today, and it was a game where almost nothing new was built for the games. They used existing sports infrastructure in the city and were able to uh, actually uh, make a real profit, and I don't think many economists look back at 84 and say they cooked the books. Mm -hmm. Now, other people have, uh, other games since that time have claimed that they've made money, and again, it kind of depends on what you count as the costs and what you count as the revenues. If you count all the revenues that come in, but you don't count all the costs, it's, it's awfully easy to make a profit on, on a lot of things. One example of this is the Salt Lake City Games for Winter Olympics in 2002. Uh, famously, this was right after the, uh, the terrorist incidents of 9-11, and so there was a huge increase in security that was not budgeted for. No one could have anticipated the huge change in security arrangements, uh, but most of those uh, additional security was picked up by the federal government and by state governments and not by the, uh, the Olympic Committee Organizing Committee for Salt Lake City. So one thing people may remember is during the entire games, there were two military fighters circling over Salt Lake City and uh, the other venues. Well, this was paid for by the Department of Defense not paid for by the Olympics, and of course that's a huge cost that someone else paid for, uh, but of course the Olympic Committee didn't share a bunch of the ticket revenue with with the U.S. Air Force. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So based on what you've seen so far, the preparations for the London Games, what's been, uh, what's been your take on the path that the organizers uh, have taken and, and the likely benefits that will come from the Games? Well, really no surprise to anyone who's looked at these that you've had just a huge ballooning of the cost uh, over time. When it was first announced that they won the games, they were talking uh, several billion dollars of potential costs, and now we've seen cost estimates ranging up to maybe $20 billion to host this game. Now, mind you, that's not just, uh, you know, that's not just new sports stadiums, and it's not just security for the event. There's lots of urban renewal in this, but it's really no surprise that you've had this huge, uh, this huge ballooning of costs because we've seen that before. Obviously, there's a lot of general infrastructure also going into the London Games, uh, but the question is, you know, is there any way that you can get needed and important urban renewal without also having to come up with four or five billion dollars worth of sports stadiums and, and operating costs. 
And uh, that's really a political question. But uh, you're basically getting urban renewal with a significantly increased price tag because you're having to go along with sports infrastructure at the same time you're getting just general urban renewal. So I want to ask, uh, Victor, about the benefits that go beyond the tangible gains and losses in, in an economic sense. So is it is it possible to measure the the happiness or the civic pride that a mega event like the Olympics brings, or even even having the local club play in a publicly funded stadium? Sure. So, uh, and I think we see a lot of economists say that that. Really, if you want to have something like the games, it should be because this is a fun event for the local the local city or the local country. Uh, but when games are sold by saying, you know, this is going to make you a lot of money, this is where the economists will step up. We do have one very clear example of this. Uh, the 2006 World Cup was held in Germany. Uh, folks who have looked back at this, again, they find very little increases in things like employment or GDP or tourism spending or number of visitors. So certainly all of the direct economic impacts of the World Cup on the German economy uh, were small and a fraction of what was being claimed by event organizers. But when people went back and looked after the games and surveyed the German people, uh, you did find a significant increase in in the general happiness of the German public after the games. And of course, the world's a lot better place with a bunch of happy Germans than a lot of angry ones. And uh, so this is something that you can definitely measure uh, of being, you know, there is a happiness and a feel-good effect that's almost certainly the biggest effect of these. Um, but again, it's got to be it's got to be emphasized that these events may make you happy, but there's no reason to believe that they're going to make you rich. Mm-hmm. So, Victor, I'll ask: Do you have any recommendations for uh, books, whether about the economics of the Olympics or economics of of mega events? So, the best book on. Um, the Olympics, and from an academic standpoint, is a book called uh, The Economics of Staging the Olympics. Uh, this is by a uh, German colleague, Holger Preuss, and really goes through all of those nitty-gritty uh, accounting for uh, how much did they spend and how did they raise the money uh, for a bunch of Olympics between about 1970 and 2008. Uh, so that is really, for most sports economists, really the Bible of, of trying to get some real numbers that are believable. Um, uh, Holger Preuss is, is an excellent economist who is very careful about this. He's not a cheerleader for the IOC, uh, nor is he someone who says, oh, I can't believe we're wasting all this money on sports. I think he has a very, uh, very clear idea of trying to just come up with a good accounting and really kind of following the money as it goes through the Olympics. Although it is, there's lots of numbers in there, so you've got to be a numbers liker. <laughs> if you want to read something uh, related to the general idea of you know, why, why the promoters of sports and how they get it wrong, is I would recommend uh, the book Field of Schemes. That's by Neil DeMouse. And uh, that is not specifically related to uh, the Olympics or other things, but does uh, relate to this idea that sports boosters tend to, uh, you know, have vastly overestimate the sort of benefits that one gets from uh, sports, and they're doing that in order to get large public subsidies. Victor Matheson's recommendations for further reading on sports and economics are Field of Schemes, 
how the great stadium swindle turns public money into private profit by Joanna Kagan and Neil DeMouse, published by Common Courage Press in 2002. And Holger Price's book is titled The Economics of Staging the Olympics, A Comparison of the Games, 1972 to 2008, published by Edward Elgar Publishing in 2006. One of the attractions and curiosities of the Olympics is that every four years, for two weeks, we sit in front of the television and watch sports that we otherwise pay little attention to. During the Olympics, fans take a break from their favorite sports to watch gymnastics and diving and rowing. And then, when the torch is extinguished, we go back to baseball, football, and cricket. This is a big part of why I look forward to the Olympics, and many of my guests on the episode agreed. So along with asking them to share their expertise on the Games, I also invited them to tell us, what Olympic event do you most like to watch? Here's what a few of them had to say. Wow, what a question. Um, probably the marathon is my favorite event, um, mainly because I've done, I've never done a marathon, but I've done a lot of long distance running in my time, including 20 milers. Um, I've done a lot of research on the history of the, the, the London 1908 marathon, the, the one that gave us completely randomly the distance that we now have, the only non-metric distance in the Olympics that was just set on by chance. Um, and I, I, I love that 1908 route. Um, I, I used to run part of it myself when I was a school kid. I've walked it recently for my research. So I love the way in which the, the Olympic marathon has evolved over time. So that's one I definitely look forward to. I admire the stamina and the grip involved. I do love to watch the swimming. Um, and I suppose one of, the, one of the things about it is that it's incredibly exciting. And I think it's a sport that doesn't get the publicity that it deserves outside of the Olympic Games. The Olympics is interesting, I think, for that. Um, you know, as a football fan, I'm probably less interested in watching football in the Olympics than I am the Olympic swimming. So I think that's one aspect to why, to why I love the swimming. But also because I think the Olympics frames the swimming and diving so beautifully. I think, you know, if you think back to those kind of iconic images uh, of Barcelona, for example, we can see real innovations in the way that sport is pre presented through the media. And I just think it's exciting in itself because, you know, it's, especially the sprint racing, um, so close, um, and you can see the real atmosphere in the pool. That's, that's a really good question for me there. Um, I, I, I think swimming is, is really appealing. I find that be a lot of fun. Uh, if, if I can only watch one event within one sport, uh, it would be the men's 100 meters. That's still the crown jewel of the Olympics. You know, the fastest man on earth. And uh, and so I'll certainly be watching to see if, if Usain Bolt still has it or not. Uh, but much like everyone else, you know, I become an amateur diving judge. And you don't think I know that there. <laughs> and uh, and gymnastics certainly can have a compelling narrative and certainly uh, um, you know, gives you those stories and, and you have some time to breathe for those there where you can watch uh, gymnastics for a few hours 
uh, whereas swimming is, is over in, in the blink of an eye. So I guess, I guess it'd be 100 meters if I have just one moment of one event and uh, swimming uh, more broadly. Well, of course, I most like to watch my own events, so the heptathlon and the decathlon, although they don't get real thorough coverage on television. So the best way to watch them is to go to the Olympic Stadium and be there for 12 hours for two days in a row. <laughs> it's, uh, and beyond that, I confess that I really like women's gymnastics. Um, I've interviewed Bob Costas with him complaining about all the fluff pieces they have to do on women's gymnastics and complaining about how they don't cover it like it's a real sport. I don't care. I'm a woman. I like the way they cover it. I like the fluff pieces, and I just love watching it. <laughs> At the Olympics, I really like to watch, I think, a lot of different things. I mean, track and field. And curiously, you know, track and field is still enormously popular as a spectator and televised sport in Europe mm -hmm. and much of the rest of the world. And it was in the U.S. in the early 20th century, but nobody goes to track meets or watches them anymore. And I have a particular fondness for the steeplechase. I think it makes great, great theater uh, on, on television. So I like track and field. Basketball is a sport I'm particularly fond of, uh, and I like to play and watch normally, but Olympic basketball is in some ways uninteresting because you know the outcome that generally that the U.S. is going to win. Other than you know, I remember watching the 1972 final in Munich, and that was fairly exciting television. And the, for once, the U.S. lost, uh, and that was a fascinating game and you know fascinating history. But in some ways, I'm not. I don't. I wouldn't stay up late at night to watch the U.S. beat you know <laughs> Uganda by 130 points. Uh, well, I'm a huge soccer fan, uh, and uh, I actually refereed professional soccer, uh, uh, so uh, that has always been my uh, my excitement. Uh, that being said, the men's soccer at the Olympics is actually an under-23 tournament with maybe a couple overage players in there, so that doesn't have the same appeal as the men's World Cup. But on the women's side, the Olympics really are the pinnacle of women's soccer, so I always enjoy uh, watching that. And I actually got a chance in 96 in Atlanta to go watch the women's gold medal match, which was won by the Americans. Uh, so I, I'm a big fan of the uh, of, of women's soccer at the Olympics. Uh, I, that is truly women's soccer at the best you see anywhere in the world. And, uh, and it's always nice to watch a game where maybe the uh, home team here for, for an American like me has a good chance of it. You heard there at the end Victor Matheson talking about his fondness for Olympic women's soccer. As Victor pointed out, men's soccer at the Olympics typically doesn't gain a lot of attention. With most players under the age of 23, the Olympic football competition is more like a tournament of future rather than current stars. And of course, the most prestigious prize in international football is the World Cup, not an Olympic medal. But this year in London, the men's soccer competition has a unique twist. For the first time in 40 years, the Olympic tournament includes a team representing Great Britain. In all other international football competitions, those organized by FIFA and UEFA, there is no such thing as a British team. Instead, the home nations, England, Scotland, Wales, and Northern Ireland, each field their own teams. 
But when Team GB takes to the pitch at Old Trafford for its first Olympic match against Senegal, the roster will include English and Welsh players. Meanwhile, Scottish and Northern Irish football administrators remain adamant in their refusal to cooperate with this British team. To sort out the significance of the British team and the controversy surrounding it, I spoke with football writer Steve Mennery, author of the book GB United, British Olympic Football and the End of the Amateur Dream, published in 2011 by Pitch Publishing. To start, I asked Steve, why has the British Olympic football team been revived for these Olympics after a 40-year absence? I think because we've won the Olympics and because we're the hosts, I don't think there would have been uh, any idea or any appetite for reviving the team if we hadn't won in 2012. And I think uh, David Beckham was very involved with the bid, so that kind of, it kind of in some ways has become a bit of a way of prolonging his career. Although he's not definitely in the squad, but that seems to be the that seems to have taken over as the story around a team. You know. So when Britain has fielded a team in the past, it has been truly British. In, in fact, non-English nations have been overrepresented on past teams. Correct? Uh, well, they have, but it took them a while to start out. I mean, in, in 1908 was the first uh, tournament, but England was the only uh, only country in in FIFA at the time. Uh, FIFA had only been formed in 1904. England, the first tournament was 1908, and only England at that point had joined. And so they kind of, you know, as is the kind of English way within Britain, sort of took over, really, and, and entered a team. And they had a separate amateur team as well as a full team. They had an amateur team, and some players kind of crossed over and, and played for both. And it, was, it wasn't really until 1936 that players from outside of England took part. You know, we won it in 1908, we won it in Stockholm in 1912, and then it wasn't played again due to the war until 1920 when we lost it. Um, and all those teams then were all completely English, although the manager in 1920 was Welsh. And then, you know, we didn't enter again until 36 because we were, the, the British were busy having rounds with the rest of the world over what really, you know, what was an amateur. Uh, you know, we, we had an idea that no one could be paid for anything whatsoever. And the, other, the rest of Europe had an idea that if a person missed work, you could at least compensate them for missing work, uh, which is sort of fairly reasonable, but the British didn't think that. So we sat out of it until 36. And at that point, Hitler, or the Germans, actually wrote to the English FA and said, we want a British team. And so the English FA wrote to the other 300 nations, the Northern Irish, the Welsh and the Scots, and said, you know, we're going to go. Uh, you can come with us or you can stay at home, which is uh, often the English way of doing things. And, uh, and on this occasion, they did come. So they took a, a, you know, a fully combined team, but only really on four occasions in the finals. Of, of the eight times they've appeared in the finals, only four of them have, been, uh, have involved other players. You know, four of them have just been solely English. Mm. So it's been, yeah, it's been a difficult thing to work out over the years, I think. And and the football bodies in Scotland, Wales, and Northern Ireland weren't weren't exactly excited about their players being picked for this British team, correct? No, 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 uh, not not so. No, 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 no they weren't, weren't keen at all. I think it's become, you know, uh, you know, there's a big sort of divide really in, in uh, uh, you know, in what's kind of going on and the and the effort, the effort quite reasonably. The Scots. Are the, Northern Irish and the Welsh are saying, well, if we take part in this, you know, it might somehow jeopardise our independent status within FIFA because, you know, they aren't countries in terms of, you know, as regarded by the UN as a country. But, you know, there's about 20 places in FIFA that aren't countries either, you know, Puerto Rico and the Virgin Islands and, you know, Aruba, some of the French colonies and British colonies. So 
I, I, I think that's a, in some ways a bit of a misnomer, really. And I think the one thing that's been, I feel, has been kind of missed out on this um, is, is, you know, is the involvement of the players. And, and Brad Friedel spoke very eloquently on this uh, at a conference I was at last year, and he said uh, he'd been to, I think, three Olympics and two World Cups, or the other way around, and, you ha- and just how you couldn't compare the two. And you know he, he spoke particularly well on this and said you know you go to the Olympics and there you are in the in the hall you know the dining hall eating and there's Shaquille O'Neal and there's Roger Federer and there's you know Paula Radcliffe and you know you're you're part of something with it, whereas in the World Cup you're scrawled away in a hotel um, you know with your teammates and not mixing with anyone else and and so I think the you know, the FAs have kind of been against it and the fans have been against it you know the players it's very difficult for them to say anything without you know uh, it being interpreted as being sort of pejorative I think really. So there are players who are uh, excited about being on on an Olympic team because you get a sense of w- with football in the Olympics that uh, uh, it's it's it doesn't receive a lot of attention and uh, as you were just saying that that fans look to the World Cup or to the Euro Championship as as the major event in in football, not the Olympics. Well, I think in Britain that's certainly the case because you know we haven't had a team since '72 and it's gone out of people's consciousnesses. But I think you know in other countries it does it does perhaps mean a bit more. You know, I mean, Samueletto's got a gold medal, Guardiola, the ex-Barcelona coach, has got a gold medal, Messi's got one, Tevez has got one, and to all these people, you know, it, it means a lot. And I mean, before the first World Cup in 1930, Uruguay won the Olympics in '24, they won the Olympics in '28, and they staged the first World Cup and won that. And they haven't been in the Olympics since then. Well, they're coming back this year for the first time. And, you know, it means a lot to them. It means a lot to the Brazilians because it's the only tournament the Brazilians uh, have never won. So I think, you know, I think it's perhaps unfairly maligned. And I think what FIFA were trying to do when they changed it, you know, tried to move away from this kind of amateur idea, which you you couldn't really, you know, wasn't really justifiable in in the modern world. They were trying to create a world under 23 championship which I think is, is a very valid thing to do because we have a World Under-20 Championship, so why shouldn't we have a World Under-23 one? And what I feel has kind of besmirched that is the involvement of these, under, these over-23 players. You know, in this country, the whole debate of the Olympic team seems to involve David Beckham. You know, and I'm not anti-David Beckham in any way, but, you know, there's a lot of great young players for whom it could be a good, you know, it could be a fantastic thing to be part of. And uh, that, that, I think, is, you know, the, the, the debate has kind of become clouded, certainly in, in Britain, uh, over you know, what it's about and who should play and what it's going to mean and all that kind of thing. So is there anticipation now among fans uh, in the UK for, for the football competition and to, and to watch a British team? Well, I think some. I think, I think it'll, people will be surprised. I went to the final qualifier, it was at uh, Coventry, and it was between uh, Amman and Senegal. And I went to cover that for a magazine that I write for. And um, on the Saturday, Coventry uh, played the league match and they got relegated down to the third level for the first time in 40 years. So it was a pretty important game. Well, they got 15,000 to that game. And about four days later, Senegal played a man in Coventry and the organisers said, we hope to get eight to 10,000. And I thought, well, you've got no chance, you know. And even 15 minutes before kickoff, I thought, there's going to be nothing like that. Well, in the end, they got 11,000 people there. And, uh, you know, for Senegal under-23 against Oman under-23. And so it was quite, yeah, the crowd was quite good. Standard of football was pretty good. And I think people, you know, I, th- I think people will be quite surprised. And I also think in this country, you know, we're not going to see a major international football tournament here for a long time, I don't think. Although there's some talk of Scotland, Ireland and Wales bidding for the European Championships. But certainly in England, we're not going to see one. And I think there's a chance to go and see some, some pretty good players that we don't know about. You know, obviously there'll be Neymar for Brazil, but there'll be all sorts of other young guys who could be big stars in the future, and, and people don't know about them, so it's a chance to go and see that. So I think, I think you know, the crowds will possibly be, be better than people think. 
And so I'll ask Steve, uh, uh, thinking of your research and the reading you've done, do you have a favorite, a favorite book, not, not on football, but on the Olympics, on Olympic sports, a past Olympian? Well, I suppose a past Olympian, I guess, would probably be a guy called Vivian Woodward, who's the captain in 1908 and 1912. Uh, there, was, there was a good book about, uh, uh, about Vivian Woodward called Vivian Woodward, Football's Gentleman. That was his name. And I mean, he was a fascinating chap because he was probably one of England's greatest players, but he never went professional. You know, he's one of these, guys, one of these annoying people who was just fantastically good at everything, you know, all, all sorts of different sports, tennis and whatever. And uh, he just didn't feel the need to get paid. And then he came out of retirement and went and played for Chelsea. And, uh, you know, he won two Olympics. And I think he would have been a great player in any age, really. He would have been a great player today. Steve Mennery's book recommendation is Norman Jacobs' biography, Vivian Woodward, Football's Gentleman, published in 2005 by the History Press. As the controversy surrounding Team GB shows, the Olympics cannot escape nationalist discord and competition, in contrast to the vision of the Games as a means of building harmony and peace among the world's peoples. No matter what country we live in, we want our athletes to win, and we take great pride in our anthem being played as the flags rise above the medalist podium. Certainly we might thrill to a brilliant performance by another nation's athlete, but we don't celebrate in the same way as we do when one of our own takes the victory. In this, we are the same as the ancient Greeks who founded the Olympic Games. Historian Mark Dyerson has described Americans' nationalistic views of the Olympics in a number of books, most notably his 1997 book, Making the American Team, Sport, Culture, and the Olympic Experience, published by the University of Illinois Press. Mark spoke to me from Olympia, Greece, not far from the site of the ancient games, where he was teaching this summer at the International Olympic Academy. I asked him when this connection of nationalism and Olympic athletics began to be promoted in the United States. Oh, it starts the first time the U.S. goes to the modern Olympics, which is the first modern Olympics in Athens in 1896. Obviously, it's not television or even radio uh, that's promoting American nationalism. It's the, the print press, newspapers, who are filing stories. The American team is not even really a team then. It's a collection of athletes from Princeton and colleges in the Boston area, including Harvard, and the fact that William Milligan Sloan, who's a professor of history at Princeton, uh, was connected with Pierre de Coubertin as the first American member of the IOC is why it's Princeton's, uh, Princeton is there. And, and they sort of take a spring break trip to Athens and dominate in track and field. And from the very beginning, the American press interprets their victories as signs, not that they as individuals are stellar athletes, but that American society produces better athletes and better people than the rest of the world. So it's a sort of celebration of American exceptionalism. Uh, and that theme is constant in, in the history uh, of American interpretations of the Olympics. And not unique to the United States. Other nations do it as as well, but no one's probably done it longer uh, or with more enthusiasm than the U.S. 
So what are what are the roots of this connection of American nationalism with with sports and particularly with the with the Olympics? Why did going back to the late nineteenth century, early twentieth century, uh, why did writers see uh, sport as as an expression of American virtue? Well, I think there's the global context first that the Olympics are an international event. So certainly writers did the same thing in describing American national pastimes like baseball and prize fighting and other sports. Uh, those are mostly parochial. They're interior to the United States, although we call it the World Series. It's really the championship of, of American Major League Baseball. Uh, and the Olympics along with some other international events, but particularly the Olympics because of the variety of sports uh, allowed the press to really focus on comparison to other nations. There are precursors. One place you could argue it starts uh, is in 1851 at the first ever World's Fair in uh, England, in in Great Britain, where the uh, U.S. yacht America bested a, a whole squadron of British yachts in what would become the America's Cup International Circuit. Uh, so the America's Cup is one maybe uh, or, or is one early precursor to the kind of celebration of nationalism we'll see in the Olympic Games. Um, and there are some earlier ones. There are boxing matches in the early 19th century between American and British fighters. And international sport has always served as this vehicle for making metaphors about national strength and and national difference. Think about the use of the term national pastime, and it's supposed to be emblematic of the culture and habits of the people. That phrase comes into first British and then American English in the mid-19th century. So the groundwork is laid by the time the modern Olympics come along uh, that although there's this veneer that Pierre de Coubertin sketches over it of international harmony and, and friendship between nations. It's, it's explicitly designed to be nationally oriented. It's a collection of nations. You go not as individual athletes, but as members of national teams. And de Coubertin explicitly wanted to revive French patriotism. That's why he created or one of the major reasons he created the game. So that nationalistic element that is sort of strung together paradoxically with the internationalism in, in the Olympic Games makes them an important global stage for measuring national difference, national strength, national weakness. So this connection of, of American nationalism to athletics uh, goes back into the 19th century. Now, certainly the, the media for expressing this nationalism has changed, but do you see any, any differences in terms of the substance of the message that, that NBC presents in its uh, patriotic cheerleading or that you get in, in contemporary press coverage of the Olympics? Well, there, you know, there certainly has changed over time. The United States is a much different nation in 2012 than it was in 1912, for instance. But there are some recurring themes that are really interesting. I mean, one constant theme is American exceptionalism. The United States is different than the rest of the world, and that gets folded into the, the flag-dipping uh, mythology that's growing, growing up in the United States at the Olympics or the fact that the U.S., 
historically does not dip the flag at opening ceremonies while other nations do, which is only partially true, actually. We have dipped at times. But so you've got that constant thread. Connected to that, you've got this idea that team, the, the American team doesn't, is not a collection of particular individuals of great elite athletes. There's a sort of story-making narrative where they're turned into representatives, average representatives of the common folk of the United States. So when Americans win victory, it's not that we had some tremendously gifted and hardworking athlete who's good at the 100 meters. Somehow it's American society that produces these uh, sorts of athletes. So it's a competition between societies in the in the media and I think the public's perception uh, as well uh, not so much between individuals uh, one component historically that it drops at times but comes back you know one one of the the fundamental elements of American claims of historical exceptionalism is that we're a nation of immigrants and in the beginning of the modern Olympics American teams were heavily composed particularly of European immigrants uh, especially the Irish uh, but Italians and other groups, uh, not as much racial integration yet, so only a handful of African Americans. But the notion that the United States was a melting pot, that it accepted people from all over the world, uh, was sometimes condemned by the European press. They would call American teams uh, assemblies of immigrant mercenaries, uh, that the United States sort of couldn't find enough Native Americans uh, to to compete in the Olympics, that it had to hire people from around the world, and you know the U.S. press interpreted it very differently. That it was proof that immigration worked, uh, that uh, immigrants were becoming productive members of American society, and you know there was this melting pot narrative that was wrapped around the Olympics. It's really powerful in in late 19th, early 20th century American press coverage of the Olympics. Do you have uh, any books that you'd recommend on Olympic history or American involvement in the Olympics? There's a great biography of Jesse Owens, William J. Baker's Jesse Owens in American Life, uh, if people are interested in Jesse Owens. There are some really good books. Um, one's just about to come out. One has already come out by a group of Canadian scholars uh, Bob Barney and Scott Martin and Stephen Wynn that are not entirely focused on the U.S. but deal with te te the issue of television coverage uh, and and, uh, and and the International Olympic Committee and because the U.S. has been such a huge part of it, uh, Selling the Five Rings is the first one. Their new one should come out uh, here in six months or so. Uh, so they'll have another one on um, the uh, scandal in Salt Lake City, uh, which is a fascinating case study. Curiously, there aren't any really good books yet, I don't think. There's a book that came out on St. Louis, just on the St. Louis Games in 1904. And, you know, I certainly write about that in my books as well. But there haven't been any great books yet. I'm hoping to do one in the future on Los Angeles, either in 32 or 84. And there's not really a good book on Atlanta in, in, 90, in 1996. I think people want to forget Atlanta in some ways. Uh, but those remain in American culture, American history, sort of untold stories. If you are thinking of writing your own book on the Olympics, you heard Mark Dyerson offer his tips on possible topics. His recommendations of books to read are William Baker, 
Jesse Owens, An American Life, published by the University of Illinois Press in 2006. And the two books by Robert Barney, Stephen Wen, and Scott Martin are titled Selling the Five Rings, The IOC and the Rise of Olympic Commercialism, published by the University of Utah Press in 2004. And Tarnished Rings, The International Olympic Committee and the Salt Lake City Bid Scandal, published by Syracuse University Press in 2011. Throughout the history of the Games, Americans' nationalist view of the Olympics has required a rival. At first, in the early Games, that rival was Great Britain. During the Cold War, of course, the United States' foe in the Olympics, as in international politics, was the Soviet Union. Today, the perceived rival to the Americans in Olympic competition is China. Without question, China has made a remarkable leap in international athletics in the last three decades. And the Beijing Olympics of 2008 were widely regarded as a great success, both by visitors and the Chinese themselves. When I visited Beijing a few weeks ago, the Olympic green was busy with families and couples out for an evening stroll. And the new exhibition of Chinese history at the National Museum featured the Olympic rings and Bird's Nest Stadium among some of the iconic images of the nation's history, such as the Terracotta Warriors and the Great Wall. Anthropologist Susan Brownell has been researching and writing about sport in China for nearly three decades, most recently in her book, Beijing's Games, What the Olympics Mean to China, published in 2008. In our interview, we spoke about the legacies of these games and about China's rise to the top of the medals table in recent Olympics. To start, though, I asked Susan to explain how sport has been a part of the Chinese government's program of economic and social transformation since 1979. In, in my work, I've argued that in many ways, sport has actually led China's transformation. Um, and I would go back a little bit before 1979 and, uh, you know, point out that China, that sports led China's opening up to the outside world in the 1970s with ping pong diplomacy. So the policy of opening up was led by sports. Um, the economic reforms were actually led by sports um, post-1978. Uh, through the 1980s, the sports ministry, which was then named the State um, Commission for uh, Physical Education and Sport, um, was one of the first ministries to institute bonuses for good performance. And it was, uh, at that time, sport was the ideal place to do that, both for practical reasons and for educational reasons, because with sports, the whether you've succeeded or not is so obvious that it was easy to give bonuses to athletes and coaches who got medals. So it kind of educated people in what a competitive and fair system would look like. And it was recognized as such um, in the media who, you know, raised it as a um, model in the move towards a market economy. I mean, they would point out that, see, this is how a market economy works. Um, the rules should be fair. Everybody starts on the same starting line. Some people finish first and they get rewarded. 
So now the, the third major reform that everybody has been waiting for, of course, for many years is political reform. And I would like to argue that sports is playing a role in political reform as well, because you know, it hasn't perhaps been the revolution that um, China critics and Communist Party haters in the West would have liked. But but I think since the Beijing Olympic Games, you've seen a change in the relationship between the government and the people, between state and society. Because, you know, what an Olympic Games does is they hold up a mirror to a people and they see themselves in a different light especially due to the intense media scrutiny by the outside world who doesn't always see you like you see yourself. And in the years since the Beijing Olympic Games, I'm seeing things that I didn't see before. Um, One big thing is that these days you hear people talking about the fact that they know their government is organized in such a way that it can um, organize big events like the Olympic Games, that it's, um, you know, a highly centralized government that's able to uh, pool a lot of resources and pour them all into a big event. And I think they're glad that they did that. They're proud of what they achieved with the Olympic Games and also with the Shanghai World Expo two years later in Shanghai. But they don't really want to do it again. I mean, that's the mood that you hear um, in China these days is um, that people are joking about what they call bi yun, which is um, a pun because bi yun is the word for pregnancy prevention. It's the word for birth control, but it's also it also can be interpreted to mean avoid the Olympics. <laughs> and so they they joke that they've now got you know they're now engaging in bi yun. You know that. They, they just don't want that kind of event because what they want now is a government um, that pays more attention to quality of life, that's more accountable to the populace, um, that's more transparent. Um, and, and you can just see that there's um, an increasing demand from the lower levels of society that, that their government should be more oriented towards, um, you know, everyday quality of life. And that's also being reflected in discussions about reform of the state-supported sports system. I mean, that's also been a heated debate since the Beijing Olympics um, and what what is now called the um, State General Administration for Sport. The sports ministry is um, devoting increasing attention to recreational, popular, and school sport. So I want to ask about uh, the participation by Chinese athletes at the Olympics. Uh, the the first uh, Chinese athlete to win a gold medal in the Olympics was at the, the 1984 Los Angeles Games. And then four years ago at Beijing, uh, Chinese athletes won 51 gold medals, so more than athletes from any other any other country. And in your view, what has been the... Uh, or what have been the factors in Chinese athletes' success in the Olympics? China's uh, success in the gold medal count in 2008 really was due to its success in women's sports and minor sports, uh, particularly by comparison with the U.S., sports that are not university sports. 
So um, if you analyze uh, what's happened to the Olympic Games themselves since about 1988, which, you know, was the last Olympic Games during the Cold War, so after 1988, you will find that a huge number of sports and new events in old sports have been added to the program, and a very large number of those are women's sports. So the, uh, the, the, the content of the Olympic Games itself has changed quite a lot over these decades, and China has targeted those sports, those new sports and new events and women's sports, the, um, the low-hanging fruit, so to speak, the easy medals. And that's really primarily the reason that they have uh, that they finally won the gold medal count in Beijing. Um, if you look at their performances in the same old sports that have been on the program forever and that were on the program before 1988, they really haven't improved that much since then. Um, gymnastics, they've improved a lot, but that's partly due to the decline of the Soviet Union, you know, and and it's um, now. Um, constituent parts. Track and field and swimming, they've hardly improved at all since 1984. Um, Chinese people themselves recognize that to say they are a superpower in sport is a little bit of an exaggeration because they know that they lack what they call a sport culture. You know, there, there isn't a widespread recreational and popular participation in sports. And that one reason for that is uh, because financially the investment has been in elite sports and gold medals. The, that is to say the um, orientation of the state general administration for sport has been almost entirely in that direction. So there's been very little um, investment and also even very little uh, government attention to recreational, popular, and school sports. Um, there's been some, and school sports uh, do exist now, whereas they hardly existed um, in the early 80s, but the level just isn't very high yet. So, um, so is China a sports superpower? Chinese pe- people would say, well, not really, but they're able to win medals because they've got this government-led system that can target the easy medals, invest in it, and, and get them. So, Susan, you have studied uh, sports in China as an anthropologist, uh, but you also have direct experience with with sports in China. So can you tell us about your experience as a heptathlete in China and how that compared with your experience in college athletics in the United States? Sure. I went to China in 1985 to study Chinese at Beijing University. And at that time, I'd already been a national class athlete in the U.S. for a period of time. I'd, um, I had just competed in the 1984 Olympic trials in Los Angeles. And so I already had the idea that maybe uh, sports would be a good topic to pursue as a dissertation topic because um, it, China had just opened up to social science researchers. Um, The U.S. and China had just restored diplomatic relations in 1979. I had a classmate ahead of me at Santa Barbara, um, Bill Jankowiak, who had gotten into China but then wasn't able to do the research he proposed to do. So I knew that you could get into China to do field work, but um, you, you were closely watched and rather restricted. And I thought 
sports might be a way to, um, you know, gain an entree into everyday Chinese people's lives. And so already when I arrived at Beijing University, I thought, well, I'll just explore this and see how far it goes. So I went to the coach of the track team and asked if I could join the track team. And they were just totally floored. I mean, they were they couldn't believe what had landed on their doorstep because in China, the only athletes who were entering universities were retired so as it happened, the world, uh, I'm sorry, the um, national college games were being held in the spring and Beijing University was worried about not doing well because the administrators had not allowed them to recruit athletes uh, without taking the admissions test. They had held to admission standards. And so Beijing University, which is sort of like the Harvard of China, was worried that it was going to lose face. Um, anyway, so they were um, quite happy to see me, and I joined the team and, um, you know, began to learn how to run on a dirt track, which I had never done before, wearing those heavy um, spiked shoes made out of leather with black and white stripes on them. I mean, it looked like something from Chariots of Fire. Um, I had blisters on every toe. I mean, I would go to practice with every single toe with tape wrapped around it. It was like training in the 1920s, basically. You know, that was our conditions. We were working in a gymnasium that had been built in the 1910s, I think. So, uh, you know, it was it was interesting. It was like going back in time a little bit. But um, there were aspects of it that actually were better than being a college athlete in the U.S. One thing was we had a whole, a large number of coaches taking care of us. So um, our every need was taken care of. Um, I often had one-on-one time with my coach, which I didn't have in the United States. Another thing that was really nice was Chinese medicine. So the use of massage and acupressure massage. We had really excellent doctors at Beijing University and um you know, like I, um, my hurdle lead leg hamstring often got really sore just from the action of kicking it out and snapping it down. I mean, wasn't really anything you could do about it. It just, the event caused it. And uh, I remember one time going in and this old uh, white haired guy gives me an acupressure massage and I was on my stomach and he basically dug his thumb into my hamstring, I think. And I, I mean, it hurt so bad. I rose up off the table with tears in my eyes and, and, you know, they'll, you'll say, Oh, that hurts. And they'll say, that's not important. We <laughs> And, uh, and then he says, this may be a little bit sore tomorrow, but you know, you'll be getting better after that. So sure enough, you know, you're dragging your leg around the next day and then it's healed. And I mean, it was healed for the rest of my time in China. I couldn't believe it. I mean, I never could find a treatment for it in the U.S. So uh, I became a great believer in um, traditional Chinese medicine. So I'll ask you if you have any uh, suggestions of books, Susan, whether on China and the Olympics, on Olympic sports such as the heptathlon or on the Olympics in general. Well, when I started doing my research, there were literally almost no books on sports in China. And um, it took a long time before others started turning their attention to it. 
So, of course, you know, my 1995 book on uh, training the body for China is still um, one of the ones that um, captures the nature of the state-supported sports system, which still exists um, in pretty much the same form as I described in that book. We've had a couple of really nice uh, history books. Um, Andrew Morris's book, Marrow of the Nation, is a really well-researched history of um, sport rep- before the revolution. And then there's um, Xu Guoqi's book, China's Olympic Dream, which is a, a survey that takes you from before the revolution up to 2008. And that one is really excellent, particularly for the discussions of ping pong diplomacy. He went to every archive that he could go to um, in researching that part of the book. So he's the only person in the world, as far as I know, that's um, done all the archival research on that topic, including the just opened Canadian archives um, discussing the Montreal 1976 games. Uh, there's Dong Jinxia's book, um, Women's Sport and Society um, in China. So there, there are a number of books. The history, there are more history books, and I think they're generally of better quality. Um, and you know, we're we're still um, working on methodologies and just ways to write about contemporary Chinese sports. It's um, perhaps a, a methodological and disciplinary challenge. And it's also, uh, if you're researching the government-supported system, it can be hard. Access is quite an issue because, um, you know, there's a lot of uh, semi-secret information that um, is not easily acquired. Susan's recommendations for readings on sport in China and East Asia are Andrew Morris, Marrow of the Nation, A History of Sport and Physical Culture in Republican China, published in 2004 by the University of California Press. Xu Guoqi's book is titled Olympic Dreams, China and Sports, 1895-2008, to published by Harvard University Press, in 2008. The book by Dong Jinxia is Women's Sport and Society in Modern China, Holding Up More Than Half the Sky, published by Rutledge in 2002. And Susan's first book was Training the Body for China, Sports in the Moral Order of the People's Republic, published by the University of Chicago Press in 1995. The opening ceremonies of the Beijing Olympics are, to date, the most watched televised event in history, and it is estimated that 70% of the world's population tuned into the 2008 Games at one time or another during their two-week run. Television coverage is integral to the Olympics. Around the world, even people who do not typically follow sports tune into the Games and the International Olympic Committee relies on the fees that various national networks pay to broadcast the Olympics. The American network, NBC, is paying $1.18 billion this year to broadcast the London Olympics in the United States. And last year, NBC signed a new contract for another $4.3 billion to broadcast the next four Summer and Winter Games. The payoff, they expect, is that for some nights of the Olympics, 
NBC will gain more viewers than all of the other three major networks combined. Andrew Billings has analyzed the coverage of various Olympics by NBC and other U.S. networks, and more recently, he and his research team have been looking at the televised Olympic coverage in other countries as well. The holder of the Reagan Chair in Communications at the University of Alabama, Andy has presented his research in dozens of articles and six books, including the 2008 book, Olympic Media, Inside the Biggest Show on Television, published by Rutledge. In our conversation, Andy explained that the Olympics are like no other televised sporting event. Viewers generally don't know much about the particular Olympic sports or the athletes. Therefore, the standard approaches to broadcasting sport don't apply. To start, I asked Andy to explain the tack that NBC takes in its coverage of the Games. How does the network package the Olympics for American viewers? Well, it's obviously a tack that is very, very different from any other form of sports media. Uh, that is derived from the fact that uh, the demographics on the Olympics are very different in terms of viewership compared to anything else. Uh, we're probably, once again, going to see about 60% of the viewers are going to be female. Uh, the only other sporting event that even draws majority female viewers is the Kentucky Derby at 51%. So it's a very different audience in that way, and they have a different palette for things. So as a result, the programming for NBC is much more likely to be focused on drawing in women and keeping men, the presumption being that men will watch no matter what it is because it's sports and women need a reason to watch. So men are more likely to stick around through gymnastics than women are to stick around for boxing. So for, first of all, you have to look at what they're showing in the prime time telecast. And we are at the point now, and I believe this formula will stay the same, where uh, you know approximately 93% of the Beijing coverage in prime time with Bob Costas hosting was focused on just five sports, uh, gymnastics, track and field, uh, swimming, diving, and beach volleyball. So you start there and you see what sports are being shown and what are not being shown. From there, you start to see what is their approach to showing this. And their approach is very different in that you know, if you tune in to watch the NBA Finals, you already know who LeBron James is. You already know who Dwayne Wade is if you're tuning in for that. Uh, you at least have some sort of guidelines. Uh, for many Olympic viewers, the goal for NBC is to promote stories in a way that at 7 o'clock Eastern, we may have never heard of this person's name before, and yet we will be overcome with emotion with a result for that person three hours later. That is a, that's a tough sell. And so it's, it's really about building stories and giving us a chance to know the athletes in that way. Now, a lot of my work has been, you know, going with this imaginary line of what is fair. And there really is no answer there as far as uh, what is fair in terms of the amount of coverage devoted to men versus women or Americans versus non-Americans. Uh, you know, we find that in the Summer Olympics, we get even closer to gender equity than the Winter Olympics for whatever reason. 
so once again, if, if things hold, we'll be looking at a, a summer Olympic telecast that is 52 to 53% male and 47 to 48% female. And you can look at that and say, you know, overall, uh, we're not quite there at gender equity. Or you can say, well, uh, Sports Center and most major newspapers are showing women athletes in the single digits. And 47 and 48% is incredibly progressive. So it depends on where you place that bar as to what is fair. Uh, same thing with nationalism. Uh, you can, you know, chances are we're going to see about 40 to 45% of the coverage uh, being focused on American athletes. That can seem incredibly high or incredibly low depending on where you place that bar. Uh, overall, Americans tend to win 11 to 13 percent of the medals in any Summer Olympic Games. Chances are that will hold true again here. So we have about a four to one ratio in terms of the amount of coverage versus the amount of coverage that would seem to be warranted based on medal earnings. But of course, if NBC only showed Americans 12 percent of the time, ratings would plummet and they would lose a ton of money in the process. So, so it's this double-edged sword that NBC often is faced with uh, wanting to chronicle history and kind of be the time capsule telecast, which they really do see themselves as, and then also being able to secure a rating that is giving the audience what it wants. And what they want to see and what we find is that, uh, you know, many times people will talk about do they want to watch men or women athletes in the Olympics? the American flag trumps all. Uh, if it's wrapped in the American flag, we will watch men, we will watch women, we will watch sports that we never even knew the rules of because it's wrapped in the flag of our country. And that becomes the primal starting point for most people when they watch the Olympics. So following the last summer games in Beijing in 2008, uh, you did collaborative research that looked at NBC's coverage and the coverage by Chinese central television. And so what did you find in how Chinese television presents an event as opposed to American television? Well, it, it was interesting. It, it really was quite different, and it was hard to even figure out. You know, uh, we decided to go with the five major U.S. sports, which you know are not the five most prominent for China. Part of our problem was we were trying to figure out how how to make an accurate comparison when, for instance, they don't package things the way NBC does. And so they show things live, and when they're on, they're on. So that was one thing we needed to look at. But once we, once we determined what the parameters were going to be, we found that NBC's coverage was much more likely to have what we would call color commentary, you know, interpreting the results and describing things that maybe aren't directly attributable uh, to the athletic performance, you know, trying to really interpret things from there. The Chinese coverage was much more, first of all, there was much less of it. They were much more likely to let the visual do the work. Uh, they were much less likely uh, to interpret a performance as anything but the objective stat. You know, they ran this. You know, they ran the 100 meters in 10.3. Uh, so that was, that was certainly one difference. But still, the Chinese telecast, and this is true with virtually any other telecast, uh, was more likely to insert notions of 
of uh, nationalism than NBC. You know, NBC will show Americans more, but, for instance, it's a cardinal sin at NBC to use personal pronouns to describe the, uh, the basketball team as our team or we're not doing as well or, you know, whatever it is, using those personal pronouns. In China, they were going to use those personal pronouns, and that has proven to be true. You know, I've, I've certainly worked with researchers uh, in Europe, in Australia, whatever it is, and they will have personal pronouns, and they'll also have examples that we don't really find on NBC. Uh, Dick Ebersol, uh, you know, uses an example of in Australia, you know, they're very passionate about their swimming. Well, one time they had an example where the camera was so focused on the Australian swimmer that we didn't see who won because they were focused on the Australian swimmer who we got to see finish fourth. Uh, and he said that would never happen in a million years with NBC. So there certainly is, once again, kind of that notion of NBC wants to be the time capsule. So, Andy, I'll ask if you have any recommendations of, of books on the Olympics or coverage of the Olympics or particular games. Oh, there's so many things out there. It depends on whether you're pro-Olympics or anti-Olympics. Uh, you know, they're, 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 it really runs the gamut. Um, uh, there's a book, Five Ring Circus, uh, that looks at kind of the, the underbelly, of especially the, uh, the drive to determine or, you know, to make a bid for the Olympics, I think it's a good read. A lot of things that I think you'll find in the Olympics are actually in the form of journal articles or book chapters that I think are, are really useful. Um, uh, Pirko Markula has a really good book that came out a couple years ago. I'm trying to remember the title. Uh, she's a Canadian author that really looked at gender in the Olympics in a useful way. Uh, but there's certainly a lot out there, um, everything from simple athlete profiles and greatest moments to things that are highly critical of the Olympic movement to the point that, you know, they either think it's, you know, the best years are, are gone by or that it's completely tainted and not really a, a pinnacle of athletic achievement the way lots of people would like to portray it. Mm -hmm. I like to be somewhere in the middle, you know. I, I see the good, I see the bad, um, but regardless of whatever side you take on it, the bottom line is the Olympics have a great deal of power. They have the power to shape our discussions about different cultures or even different races uh, that maybe you don't have a lot of exposure to otherwise. And, uh, and so it's, it's really something when you think about, you know, a lot of people watch the Olympics and they will see an athlete from a country they've never been to and they're never going to be to, and the only real exposure they have to it is, you know, the camera being focused on that athlete and one sportscaster who gets to decide which of four or five different narratives to tell. And that can influence someone's feelings about, like I said, a different nation, a different race of people. There's a lot of power that is ultimately imbued within the Olympic telecast. And that's that's what really interests me is, you know, we have so few water cooler shows anymore, and the Olympics is still one. Everyone in every demographic still watches in mass. Andy Billings' suggestions of books on the media coverage of the Olympics are Five Ring Circus, Myths and Realities of the Olympic Games, 
written by Christopher Shaw and published by New Society Publishers in 2008. And the book by Perko Markala is titled Olympic Women and the Media, International Perspectives, published by Palgrave Macmillan in 2009. As Andy noted, the broadcasters of Olympic Games have great power. Not only can they shape our perception of national groups, but they also package and transmit images of events and people that viewers around the world remember for decades. No matter what country you're sitting in now, as you listen to this podcast, you likely can still picture, like I do, the scenes of Antonio Robola lighting the cauldron in Barcelona, or Kathy Freeman taking her victory lap in Sydney, or Usain Bolt looking behind himself and slowing his pace before the finish line in Beijing. The Olympics are a driving agent of globalization in that they contribute to, perhaps more than any other cultural event, our worldwide collective memory. What is the one moment from the Olympics that you remember most distinctly? I asked the guests on the podcast to think of past games they've watched, either as a child or an adult, and to share that one Olympic moment that stands out in their memory. Here's what some of them had to say. Yeah, this is easy for me um, because my dad bought a new colour telly um, for us to watch the 1972 Olympic Games. Um, And the big standout moment for for me was watching Olga Corbett. Um, And I instantly wanted to be Olga Corbett. Um, I wasn't very old at the time. I shan't tell you how old I was, but um, she was the real person who who made me want to get into sport. And uh, there's been a lot of controversy about women's gymnastics in terms of whether it's been changed from a sport for women into a sport for girls. And some people have been somewhat dismissive and said, you know, it's a a sport for for pixies. But um, I like the fact that Olga Corbett was a bit scruffy she looked like she'd done her own ponytails. She she wasn't the most kind of groomed and perfect athlete that you'll ever see. And so I thought she looked a little bit like me. Um, and it was one of the things that made me want to get into sport. I think it's, it's got to be uh, as a kid, and it's a, it's a tragic one, really, because it's Munich 1972, and with the uh, Black September um, attack on the Olympics and the, and the murder of a group of, of Israeli competitors. I was seven years old at the time, um, I've got two older brothers, and I'd heard from them all about the Olympics and that this was a fantastic sporting event and the world got together and it was all about peace and love. And I remember watching and seeing people shooting each other or hearing about this. And I've no doubt whatsoever that that set me on the, the path to being, if you like, a critical sports historian who asks these awkward questions. And I remember Mark Spitz from 72 winning all these medals in the pool. I remember for Britain, Mary Peters um, winning on, on the track and field events. But, you know, unfortunately, I have to admit, it's the the massacre that sticks in my mind the longest. I think probably when I was growing up, uh, Steve Ovette and Seb Coe, the races that they ran, you know, that was the, you know, there was also, there was was a couple there because they raced different distances against each other. But I certainly remember growing up watching those because that was, you know, you had two two great runners who were very, very different people. Um, You know, it was almost a bit like Chariots of Fire in a way, you know, the kind of background of two guys and the the races and, you know, in the end they both got goals, I think I'm right in saying, but, uh, you know, I remember that very, very clearly as a kid, you know.
One moment I go back to a lot for a, a multitude of reasons was in 1996 with Carrie Strug's One-Legged Bolt in Atlanta. Um, I look at that for an incredible achievement. It was a great moment in U.S. Olympic history. Uh, but it was also, to me, there were a couple different narratives that were appealing to me there. Number one, it was almost like you were asking the question, could someone want something badly enough that they could defy gravity if only for a couple seconds? And that, that was really what Carrie Strug was doing. She was injured and found a way to, to defy gravity to, to nail that vault. Now, on a larger scale, what interests me as a communication and media researcher was the order in which that event ultimately took place. Uh, gymnastics is inherently, even if it's happening live, you're going to watch some things on tape because different teams are performing in different events at the same time, so you have to piece that together. But what was interesting was in Atlanta, if you actually saw the order, you would have seen that the U.S. had secured the team gold medal before Carrie Strug landed that vault. On TV, we saw Carrie Strug land the vault, and then, oh, the U.S. has secured the gold medal, which then fed into this narrative of Carrie Strug's vault won the gold medal for us. The truth was that statistically we had secured it before she landed the second vault. Uh, all accounts would indicate Carrie Strug did not know that, so that's that's fair in some way there. But I still find it interesting that that simple order of things uh, changes the Olympic moment in some way, knowing that if we had been told in the audience, and, and every account I've gotten is that even the commentators did not know what people at the table knew, which was that the gold medal was secured. Uh, some people at the scores table were saying, does she realize she doesn't have to do the second vault? But the sportscasters didn't know that. But simply the, the changing the order of something can change the way we view history and the way we look at an event like this that's now 16 years old. I never knew that. Yeah. You, you've ruined that moment for me. I'm sorry. Well, and once again, <laughs> it's just to her, she still defied gravity. And yeah. still, uh, you know, it's... It, you know, for everyone involved, they did not know that, but the people at the scores table knew. Oh, okay, okay, okay. Huh. You know, so, so it wasn't necessarily deceptive as much as it was It was an information point that could have been shared. Oh, yeah, yeah. That would have shared, and you would have changed in some way your view of that moment. Our shared memory of the Olympics is shaped not only by televised events we've watched, but also by the images of the games that we've seen in newspapers, magazines, and books, and now online. To close this special episode, we'll hear from someone who's been making images of the Olympics for close to three decades. Bill Frakes is a photographer for Sports Illustrated magazine, and he's been covering track and field and other events at the Olympics since the 1984 Games in Los Angeles. I wanted Bill to explain for us something of the process of how a photographer prepares to cover an Olympic event and how an image goes from the camera at trackside to the pages of Sports Illustrated. To begin, I asked Bill, a former student of economics and law, to explain what led him to become a sports photojournalist. My life goal has always been to be a storyteller. And 
I didn't know what form that was going to take. I didn't know if I was going to take it. If I was going to be a, a history major and and write a textbook, or if I was going to teach like my parents both did. Uh, if I was going to be a journalist, which is something that's been appealing to me, or if I wanted to practice law and, and tell stories that way. Uh, after after I went through and got the degrees and things, I went ahead and uh, went to work at the Miami Herald. And while I was at the Miami Herald as a staff photographer, I met a Sports Illustrated staff photographer named Heinz Klutmeyer. When Heinz became director of photography at Sports Illustrated, he started asking me to shoot assignments for him on a freelance basis, then I moved to a contract at Sports Illustrated and eventually to a staff position. So when you moved from the Herald to doing uh, work with Sports Illustrated, and uh, and I asked this as an ignorant layman, is, is there a difference in terms of how you photograph uh, a news event or, say, uh, knowing that you were part of the Pulitzer Prize winning team that, that uh, uh, covered Hurricane Andrew in South Florida? Is there, is there a difference in how you photograph the aftermath of a hurricane as opposed to photographing a sports event? Sure. There are huge differences, and not in terms of style or approach necessarily, but in terms of equipment, in terms of physical proximity, the way you can work. When I arrive at a sporting event, I arrive with cases of gear, and, and then I'm working in one fixed location. I know, for the most part, when it's going to start, what it's going to stop, and what's going to happen. If you're at a hurricane, you know, there's all kinds of things at play. You know, things are moving, things are evolving. You have a rough idea what's going to happen, but not really. You know, you, you know that there's going to be devastation, there's going to be tragedy, there's going to be some relief, um, there's going to be some physical discomfort and hardship. Uh, at a sporting event, I know when I'm covering... For example, my favorite sporting, yearly sporting event is the Kentucky Derby. And I know that right now, today, I know that the Kentucky Derby next year is going to be run the first Saturday in May, more or less at 625. I know that right now. But with a hurricane, I have no idea if there's going to be a hurricane tomorrow or ever. So you, you, your preparation is different. I've been preparing for the London Olympics for, you know, 18 months making notes, looking at the stadium charts, talking to people, studying the athletes, figuring out who's going to be where, doing things that, that lead to it. I mean, I spent, I got home from the U.S. Track and Field Championships in Eugene, Oregon last night at about 2.30. The first thing I did was I sat down to myself a list of questions I need to answer, what worked, what didn't work, what else do I have to have that I hadn't planned before. Uh, we do a lot of work with remote cameras, uh, robotic cameras. When I say we, it's not me and all my personalities, it's me and the woman that I work with a lot, Laura Heald, who's, we, we do these things together for the most part. And, uh, you know, we'll have a, a list of things to do. I, I'm guessing we'll take 12 or 14 cases of gear to the Olympics. I'll travel from Florida with somewhere around 16 Nikon D4 cameras. Not sure the exact total yet, and probably 30 lenses. I'll have an electronic digital strip camera. I may take a film strip camera. I haven't decided yet. I'll have tripods and clamps and magic arms and ball heads and plates. You know, I may do some, I do a lot of multimedia production and video production, so I may take some ancillary equipment, you know, some sliders and jibs, DSLR gear. Uh, I usually use the Cinebate stuff for that because it's big and strong and rugged when you're a journalist. You you know, because I'm a sports photographer when I'm at the Olympics. I'm also a journalist because it's a news event. Uh, I like the Cinebate stuff because it's rugged and it's strong and I can throw it in a case and I don't have to baby it when I get there. It works one of the reasons I love the Nikons too. That's you know, it's just stuff that works for me. Uh, for the most part, whether you're covering a hurricane or an Olympic Games or any other kind of news event, the single most important thing 
is the gear to, to work when you push the button because these are moments that are never going to happen again. I, I realize that no moment is ever going to be exactly repeated, but if I'm photographing my daughter, I can have pretty good success saying, hey, Havana, do that again, <laughs> and, and I'll have good luck. I'm not so certain that when Justin Gatlin and Johan Blake are battling it out for the 100-meter crown in London, I'll be able to say, can you guys just do that one more time for me? Probably won't be treated favorably. Well, let me ask, picking up on your preparation, uh, aside from the technical preparation, so the equipment and and scouting the stadium, do you do preparation in terms of like a scout you know, where, you, where you're looking through the competitors and the list of, of who's running in the heats to find out uh, this is the person I want to focus on or, or these are the, the people I want to pay attention to during the event? Of course I do. You, you only have a certain amount of uh, time in, in any given day. But I try to set aside an hour a day to do studying. Technical things I need that are changing in the industry and the athletes or the subjects that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to photograph. It doesn't matter if I'm going out to photograph Ted Kuzer, you know, the, the former poet laureate of the United States, or Justin Gatlin. I need to sit down and know what they're all about before I get to them because things happen very, very quickly. And you want to be respectful. You want to be thoughtful. You need to be intelligent in your coverage. And the more information you have that you can bring to bear on any given subject, the better off you are. As photographers, we have a, a certain responsibility to the people we photograph. A year ago, a year and a half ago, I got a phone call from a woman who would ask me if I was a photographer, and I said yes, and she asked me if I knew a man named Leroy Hatch. And I said I did remember Leroy. I photographed him in 1979 in uh, LeCompte, Kansas. And she said, well, so you remember him? And I said, absolutely. I mean, he incredible face. I photographed him with his four-year-old daughter. He's 49 years old and looked far more lined and intense than a 49-year-old. She had it was a... Four, a little four-year-old, and I was working for Pika Capital Journal, and, and uh, I was on the way home from working there to go back to the University of Kansas, where I was completing some, some classwork, and I stopped, made this photograph, it ran on the front page of a um, student newspaper, uh, just as what we call a standalone, colline only feature, and we called it the LeCompton Luminary, and I remembered the picture well. It was something I, I liked. I mean, I've made literally 10 million images in my career, but you know, this is one that I remembered. It was from Kansas. It was kind of home for me and it's just it was, it's a nice moment certainly not my greatest photograph or my or my favorite photograph but it was a nice photo and i remembered it distinctly and i said why do you ask and she said well you know he's a resident now in this facility where she was working and she said that he talks about how a man stopped and made a picture of him and his daughter and he carried the clip from the newspaper in his wallet for all these years and it showed it thousands and thousands of people so it was it was two minutes in my life, and it was a 500th of a second when I captured this. This is a memory that he held on to his entire life, and it's been something that was very significant to him, very important to him. And you have a responsibility to people when you photograph them to treat them with the right amount of respect. And that can be something that's happening in a split second in a hurricane coverage or a sporting event or a port that you, you do or any one of any number of other things. But it's a, it's a different thing you have to think about. And and I take that very seriously. So when I go to talk to somebody, I don't want to waste their time. I want to know who they are, what they're doing, if it's possible. I want to have as much information as I can. Uh, my dad was a literature teacher, and so I grew up a reader, and uh, I still am. Well, let me pick up on that. And, and I was thinking of this when you, when you photograph, say, a, a sprint or, or a hurdles race. And it would seem to me that, that the event is moving so quickly you know, is it the case that, that you're, you're just shooting away 
Or do no. you, do you, I was going to say, do you have time for actual composition that you're looking? Of course you do. I uh, my hands are fast, you know. And I'm practiced at this. I still manually focus a lot just because it gives me some more options. I mean, the autofocus on my camera is the best autofocus system in the world, and I do employ it occasionally. But for the most part, I prefer to use the the optics in a, in a manual focus because then I can control exactly where I need it to be, and I can anticipate focus, which is something that an automated system can't do. I can predict where they're going to go, and I can do that because I do it every single day. And if I if I have a week where I don't shoot very much action before I go to a game or something, I'll sit down next to a street or, or somewhere and just focus for 10 or 15, 20 minutes just to make sure that my, my hand-to-eye coordination is where I need it to be. So it's, it's funny because I just shot whatever many days of track at the U.S. Championships, and I pick up the camera when they get in the block, and I start photographing when they're partway down the stretch, and I'm very comfortable for the most part. I'm really relaxed because I know what I'm doing. I've shot it so many times. I mean, I've shot literally thousands of these races, and so I have a, a different kind of depth perception because it's a trained, it's a practice depth perception. You know, I, the, first, the first Olympics... I did for Sports Illustrated was in 1992 in Barcelona. I'd done, I'd been to the Olympics before, but working for other people. And Heinz, uh, the guy I mentioned before, Heinz Kupmar, who's he's not the greatest sports photographer that's ever lived. Certainly, he's right there. His name is. If you're going to have a discussion about who's the best of all time, he's got to be in the discussion. And Heinz could tell that I was a little rattled the first day there. You know, it was tough. I hadn't been in a big international push and shove like that before because my first Olympics was in Los Angeles. And, and when you're home, it's a different feeling. And Heinz could see that I was a little bit, you know, a little out of sorts with it because there were so many different things going on. And he just stopped me and said, look, this is easy. It's just like when you're shooting a kid riding a bicycle at you. He said, you've done this so many times. You just need to, he said, you, I don't know anybody it works harder than you. He said, now all you have to do is shut out all the other voices and only listen to your own. And it was extremely good advice. He just, you know, he just, he, he was very, very kind. Just taught me a lot in my career. And he just said, look, you have better reflexes than anybody. You know what's going on. You're prepared. Just think about what you're doing and think about nothing else, and you will be absolutely fine. And I think he was right. Well, this was something I wanted to ask about because, uh, so when I watch the games on TV, I see this, this phalanx of camera lenses along mm-hmm. along the track, and when, when you're working the event, uh, working whether the Olympics or, or another big sporting event, so what what is the atmosphere in the photographer's pit? Is there a sense of competition or camaraderie, or do you completely are you even aware of the other photographers? Oh, if it could only be so. No, <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> but no, there's a tremendous amount of camaraderie and willingness to help and good spirit. I. I use a lot of remote cameras, a lot of robotic cameras, and we shipped a case of gear to, well, we shipped a lot of cases of gear to Eugene. I don't know how many we sent. I think we took eight or ten cases. And one of the cases arrived a day late. So I went to cover I went to cover the 100 meters the first day, and I didn't have all the cables I needed. And Robert Deutsch from USA Today heard me talking to Laura about not having the right cables. He leaned over and handed me one. And about... 45 seconds later, Thomas Boyd from the Portland Oregonian said, ah, I got one. Then Bruce Ely from the Oregonian came over and said, here you go. So within five minutes, I had uh, a surplus of gear from all the other photographers, and I'd, I would absolutely be considered competition for them. But with all of us, the competition comes down to your photographic skill. We'll help each other with gear because it's going to be your turn next. 
at some point. I mean, there's hardly anybody that's done a lot of races that I haven't loaned a clamp or a ball head or a cam or something to when they had a problem. It's just the right thing to do. And, you know, if we're away from the venue and they ask me, how do you make this photograph? How did you do this? I'll absolutely do it. I mean, one of my favorite photographs that I've ever made in the Olympics was of Nemov, the Russian gymnast on the high bar. It's a multiple exposure. And the day before, Mike Blake from Reuters, extraordinarily talented photographer and just a really funny, nice man, said, uh, said hey, see that vomitor up there? He goes, I bet you we could make a really nice photograph of uh, multiple exposure there. And I said, yeah, it is. And, and he said, yeah, I wish I could stay there and do it, but I have to rotate because he had to follow. Being a news guy, he had to, heavy news guy, he had to follow the leaders around. But he mentioned to me because I, I had the latitude to wait for three hours for that picture to happen. Not everybody else would have that. But it came from a thought with Mike, and we kicked it around, and he saw something new. He wasn't going to have the time to do it. Uh, the same way mentioned to me. Like I said, we all, I'm sitting in my office right now, uh, which is covered with prints from my friends. And some of my friends are some of the best photographers in the world. And the walls of my office are lined by prints that they've given me. And, and a lot of them have my prints on their walls. So I want to ask Bill, after, say, a uh, one day's worth of events at the Olympics with, with track and field, do you look at those images at all, or do you do sure. you load them right away onto disc and send them to the editors at SMA? Well, yeah, I mean, I'm seeing them on the back of the camera a lot of times. Mm-hmm. But the editors at SI are going to sort through those and make very quick decisions initially about what they need. I mean, you know, and, I, and I'm in communication with with those editors you know we've worked together for for a long time i mean so they know what i'm trying to do i usually know what they need mm-hmm. pretty specifically because they tell me you know in this race we might need this or and they're looking at every single frame i'm shooting now that it's digital i'll go in and plug in a hard drive into the server and take every image home and review it critically and when i mean home i mean that's how sad is that i'm talking about my hotel room <laughs> Uh, you know, I'll, I'll look at it that night on a laptop, and I'll go through. If I shoot 2,000 frames, I'll look at every one because I need to know what's working and what's not. Because mm-hmm. if I have to make changes or additions or something, it's important for me to be aware of what I need to change or fix or what I need to do more of. Yeah. So that's what I'm curious about in terms of the the process where an image goes from your camera to print in the magazine. Are there instances where where you're looking at something through the uh, through the camera, and you see right away, this is the picture they want, this is the picture that should be in the magazine. No, that does, it doesn't happen like that. I'll see, a, I'll see a photograph and I'll think, wow, that worked. I'm sure that worked. And they might all agree, but they need a different picture mm. because the needs of the magazine as a collective whole may be very different than what I have for example, let's say that, that we're doing a story on, on Usain Bolt. And while I'm photographing Usain Bolt running 100 meters, Asafa Powell does something that's extraordinary, and I make a photograph of it. It might be the best track and field picture I've ever made, but if the story is on Usain Bolt, it doesn't make any sense to use a picture of Asafa Powell. So they would still need to use the best picture in their mind that illustrated the story or went with the story or gained it. And hopefully that the picture, the other picture, if it doesn't work with the story, will, you know, we have a lot of ask, a lot of different outlets. We have, you know, SI.com, uh, the iPad edition of the magazine, or the digital edition of the magazine frequently features 
photo galleries that are rich media, so there's other images there. But so, you know, it's a, it's a collective effort. You know, I can't, when I'm photographing a sporting event, I can't possibly know what Steve Fine knows about the entire magazine or Terry McDonald, the managing editor. They're building a collective whole, and they know what pieces they need to assemble it. When you're, when you're, when you're doing a magazine, a lot of times editors and people that work inside the magazine call the magazine a book. And it's because it is like a book. It's something that's a little bit, it's put together in a different way than other viewing platforms. So simply because the picture might be what I consider to be the greatest visual from the day, it might just not have any significance overall. Or it might. So I know when I see it that it's a good photograph or possibly a great photograph. I have no idea what its end use will be. Mm-hmm. Well, let me follow up on that. On, on this podcast, I've asked a number of guests why, why we watch sports. And, and people have pointed to the beauty of the athlete, to the drama of the competition, or the struggle of the individual to overcome an obstacle. So as a photographer, what are you hoping to capture when you work an event? So, so what makes for that great sports photograph that, that you capture but that might not end up in the magazine? You know, I'm trying to record the human condition. You know, I, I like people, always have. And I'm interested in the grace, the beauty, the power, the precision, when they fail, when they succeed, you know, drama, tension. You know, at the end of the day, I want to make a photograph that evokes an emotion in somebody else. It can be a wow or a oh my God or a, you know, I used to work with a, with a writer, the Pulitzer Prize-winning writer at the Miami Herald named Edna Buchanan, who a great, fantastic crime scene reporter. And she does novels now, but Edna at one point said that her goal was when, you know, when the people are reading the paper in the morning to read her story and to make them spit out their coffee and go, oh, that was her goal. And I, I don't want anybody to spit their coffee out when they look at the sports picture, but I want to I evoke a visceral response like that. That's what I'm looking to try to accomplish. So something I've asked all the guests, and uh, so we've all watched the Olympics on, on television. I've asked all the guests if they have a, a favorite moment that they watched, whether as a child or something. And I'll ask you if you've had a, a favorite Olympic moment that, that you've witnessed firsthand that, uh, as a photographer. Yeah, well, I've seen some good moments there, but uh, quite possibly the, the best moment uh, I've ever seen. Uh, it was in Barcelona, 1992. It was when Carl Lewis anchored the U.S. 4x1 team to a gold medal win at 4x1. Um, I'm pretty sure it was uh, Carl's eighth gold. He would have been 31 at that point. And he won his eighth gold. The team set a world and Olympic record, and I am trying to remember. Uh, boy, I'm going to get this wrong, I bet. But I think they ran 37.4 uh, in that. And the Cubans and the Nigerians were behind them, and all three teams ran under the existing world record. Uh, and it was in the first week of August, and that might have been the greatest day of track and field ever. Uh, and certainly, certainly, it was the one day that I felt luckiest to be at. But pretty great. Across this, a lot of great moments. I mean. Uh, one of the riders I work with a lot now, Tim Layden, and I cover a lot of track and field and horse racing together. And and uh, we've had that conversation about, you know, just these incredible, intense moments. And, you know, Tim is a terrific rider, and he's 
love reading his work and love even more working with him. And you see the little nuances that he picks up and the depth of his reporting skills, uh, which translate to to the the writing that he does because he's such a good reporter. And you know, he, you know, you look. So we're looking at things, the big picture, but also just little tiny moments. And and you know, it'll be interesting when we will be talking after something has happened, and there'll be some little tiny thing that I saw, or some little tiny thing that he saw, that you know we can both appreciate later. And it's so it's a whole different way of looking at this stuff. But as a big moment, big picture, Carl Lewis, 4x100, Barcelona. You can see Bill Frake's photograph of Carl Lewis on the track at Barcelona in the online collection of his favorite images for Sports Illustrated. The link is on our website, newbooksandsports.com. I want to thank Bill and all of my guests for taking time to offer their expertise on the Olympics. If you're interested in learning more about the history of the Games, please visit the archive of past episodes at the New Books and Sports website or on iTunes. You'll find interviews with Chris Young and Kai Schiller about their prize-winning book on the 1972 Munich Games, with Nick Sarantakis about his book on the boycott of the 1980 Moscow Games, with David Davis on the famous marathon race at the 1908 London Games. And if you'd like to learn more about the ancient Olympics, look for my interview from last year with classical scholar David Potter about his book, The Victor's Crown, a history of Greek and Roman sport. New Books and Sports is part of the New Books Network. Visit newbooksnetwork.com to find interviews with the authors of new publications in history, biography, science and technology, European affairs, and a host of other topics. If you like what you heard here, you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash newbooksandsports, and we are on Twitter at newbooksports. Friend us or follow us, and you'll get updates on new episodes and daily links to quality, shorter sports writing from around the world. I'm your host, Bruce Berglund. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the games.